Our scripture passage this morning is in Romans chapter 1. We're beginning at verse 8. The first chapter of Romans, the 8th verse, and it's page 1380. We continue in our study of what's been called the greatest letter ever written. And we're going to see in verses 8 through 15 of Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells the Romans why he is writing this letter to them, why he's writing to a small group of believers, most of whom he has never met, and writing to a place to where he's never been. Verse 8 of Romans chapter 1. Paul says, first, or the writer, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to see you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of Scripture this morning, and in it we see the Apostle Paul's heart. We see his heart for ministry, for serving Christ. We, we see his love and concern for the believers in Rome and how he wanted to share in service with them. And so... Lord, I pray that you would also open up our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts that we too might see what you have for us, what you want us to know, want us to see as Grace Baptist Church, so that as Paul wrote, we might be encouraged together, that our faith might be proclaimed and the gospel might be preached through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. In these verses, the Apostle Paul opens up his heart and he lets us see the motives with which he serves the Lord Jesus Christ. And we could say that no greater servant ever lived than the Apostle Paul except the Lord himself. And in this passage, we get a chance to look into Paul's heart and really see what made him tick. The reasons that he was who he was and what he did, what he did that he thought the way he thought, he wrote the way he wrote, and apparently it was very important to him as he wrote this epistle, this letter, to stop at the beginning right after the introduction of the first seven verses, and he lay his heart bare before the Romans. Paul had never been to the Roman church. He did not found the church at Rome. And in fact, as near as we can tell, and this is probably the way it worked, that there were Roman Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And when Peter preached that uh, first gospel sermon and 3,000 souls were saved, many of those returned to Rome to their home and they continued to spread the gospel. Most of the Christians of, of Rome had only heard of Paul and did not know him personally, although chapter 16 we'll see when we get there that 
he was acquainted with some of them, but before launching into this masterful presentation of the gospel, which some have called the Christian Constitution, Paul feels that because he did not have a personal relationship with anybody in Rome, really, that he ought to open up his heart and let them see in, that, he, that they might better understand him and be better able to accept what he teaches. And so in doing so, Paul gives us a masterful look in what it means to be a servant of the living God, what it means to actively, actively participate in true spiritual service. An overview of these verses, we see that Paul shares how he had heard of their faith, and how frequently he prays for them. He shares his heart about wanting to come and spend some time with them, both strengthening their faith and being also encouraged himself by them in the things of the gospel. He, he lets them know that he often desired to come to them, but so far he's been prevented in doing that. But now he hopes to come and find opportunities to preach there. Paul wants to use his spiritual gift to serve these people he does not know. And he also wants to benefit from their spiritual gifts ministering to him as together they labor to see the gospel expand in Rome. And this little snapshot of Paul in the Church of Rome gives us a picture of what it means to be serving saints. And the overall lesson is this, that God wants all whom he has saved to be serving saints, like the saints at Rome. And the key phrase in this section of, of Scripture is in verse 9 of this first chapter, the way verse 9 starts, where Paul says, For God whom I serve in my spirit. Paul is talking about how he serves in his spirit, spiritual service. But Paul, is, as we will see, is not the only one who's serving in these verses. He begins by mentioning how he has heard all over, every place he went, to Corinth, to Ephesus, to the place Thessalonica, the places he served, he heard about the faith of the Roman believers. He also says he expects not only to minister to the Romans, but he ministered unto them. And as we saw last week in verse 7, the believers in Rome were called saints. Called as saints. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to those who were beloved of God and were called as saints. It shows us that all of us as believers are called to be serving saints. Every one of us who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is called to be a serving saint. And so we're going to see four things here, what it means to to be a serving saint. First of all, serving saints, you can see these in your outline if you want to look at that. Serving saints spread the gospel and rejoice to hear of it being spread. Secondly, serving saints serve God sincerely in the gospel as they wait on him in prayer. Thirdly, serving saints long to be with other saints for the purpose of effective ministry. And then serving saints are debtors to all people who proclaim the gospel. So first of all, serving saints spread the gospel and rejoice to hear it being spread. So look once again at the first chapter of Romans at that eighth verse, verse eight. Paul begins, he says first. It's interesting that there's no second. <laughs> so that could be taken as first of all and then everything else follows or first things first. 
First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He begins with thanks. First, I thank God. Thanksgiving and praise to God were at the center of Paul's religious experience. He wrote 13 letters in the, in the new, that we have in the New Testament. 14 if we include the book of Hebrews, some do. And 10 out of the 13 begin with some form of I thank my God or I give praise to God. Now when Paul uses the word my, my God, it shows that for Paul, his experience of God is deeply personal. My God. For Paul, God is not some ruling deity who is far removed from people. The true believer views God as a close companion. When the psalmist David was out in the Judean wilderness and he was running from Saul, King Saul, who wanted to kill him, and he was out in that same desert where Jesus, hundred years, hundreds of years later, would be tempted by, by Satan, David was out in that Judean wilderness and he cried out in the, thir- the 63rd Psalm, You are my God. I shall seek you earnestly, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Paul and David knew God as my God. They knew him intimately. If a person does not know God personally through faith in Jesus Christ, then they're only into religion, only into religion. True Christianity is not a, um, primarily a matter of religion where you, you go to church, you go through various rituals, you keep certain moral standards. True Christianity is a matter of coming to know the living God personally through his love as you trust him to forgive, him, forgive us of our sins and give you eternal life. Turn over for a moment to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 7, page 1436, the third chapter of Philippians, at verse 7. Before Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul was into religion big time. He made it uh, the thing that he wanted to do. He says he did it in the flesh. According to the best of his human ability, he gave it his all. He says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the righteousness of the law, he says, I was found blameless. He, he studied at the feet of the, the greatest teacher of that day, but it was all external. Do this, don't do that, sit up, stand around, turn around, do the right things at the right time. And it was all an external, mechanized religion. But he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Everything that Paul had achieved in the flesh, which indeed was outstanding, he stood at the top of the heap of religious success. And as he stood on the top of the heap of religious success, he looked at what he was standing on and he says, it's rubbish. Literally in the Greek, it's dung. He was standing on a dung heap. 
counted as rubbish that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Incidentally, that's the theme of the whole book of Romans. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may, what? Know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Whatever Paul could achieve in the flesh and religion was garbage compared to knowing Christ, his God. Back to Romans chapter 1, verse 8 again. He says, first I thank God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Because it is through Christ that, that God mediates his blessings to us. Everything we receive from God, everything God does for us, everything God does to us, he does through his son. Everything that God has for us comes through Christ. You know, that's a real problem. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school class on a TV show. where They'll talk a whole lot about God, but boy, you don't want to talk about Jesus Christ. I'd even heard it might have been fake news, Facebook kind of thing, but... In the days where there was touched by an angel on TV that uh, the producers, the network, told them, oh, you can talk about God all you want, but don't mention Jesus. Don't mention Jesus. But it is only through Christ that we have access to God. Only through Christ we have access to God in prayer. And Paul is thankful to God, he says to the Roman saints, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now, Paul didn't thank the Romans for their faith as if it came from him. Wow, you guys, you've mustered a lot of faith. You guys really know how to get it done. You guys really know how to, how to do church. It's not that faith came from them. Rather, Paul thanked God because God brought these people, these formal, former pagans in that corrupt city of Rome, God brought them to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that saving faith is being proclaimed. Salvation is God's gift. Paul heard others all over the Roman Empire talking about the faith of the Roman Christians. You know, this shows us that they were a witnessing church. They were a witnessing church. They didn't have the need for a marketing strategy or an advertising campaign. Rather, they had vibrant testimonies of how God had changed their lives through the gospel. As people heard of what God was doing in Rome and, and they talked to others, the word spread throughout the empire. So even Paul, who had never visited Rome, heard about their faith and Paul rejoiced in that. You know, it's significant that the Roman church was not a result of Paul's labors. But that didn't matter to Paul. He rejoiced to hear that God was working, that God was saving people that God was working no matter who was responsible for it. Paul wasn't out to build an empire for himself. And even so, if we hear that God is working and people are coming to Jesus Christ, if we had nothing to do with it, we should rejoice, thank God, and be encouraged that the gospel is taking root elsewhere. So serving saints spread the gospel and rejoice to hear it being spread. Secondly, Serving saints serve God sincerely in the gospel as they wait on him in prayer. We see this in verse 9. 
For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request. If perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. These verses give us a lot of insight into the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. He tells the Romans that he never fails to mention them in prayer. Whenever I read something like that, I think in Leadership Journal several years ago, there's a little cartoon. As soon as I got Leadership Journal in the mail, I looked at all the cartoons first. And then I looked at the story, you know, the, the articles. But there was, you know, this guy was standing there and he sees a friend coming over towards him. And all of a sudden, it pops up in one of those bubbles over his head. Oh, please, please pray for John. And, you know, and then when the guy walks up, he said, oh, John, I've been praying for you. <laughs> he promised to pray, but he only prayed when he, when he saw him coming. You know, it's really quite amazing considering the thousands of lives that Paul's ministry had touched that he was able to include in his prayers believers that he had never met. Their faith was known throughout the ancient world, and, and that alone moved the apostle to pray for them. This reminds us of something that is crucial in ministry and service as, as all of us serve the Lord. The real work of ministry and service is prayer. The real work is prayer. The real work of serving is prayer. Whether it's preaching or it's serving in Awana or on a worship team, however each one of us serve as one of God's saints, the way you serve is more a result of prayer than the ministry itself. Referring to the ministry of preaching and its dependence upon prayer, Robert H. Mounts in his commentary on Romans says this, A sermon that does not rise from intense and heart-searching prayer has no chance of bearing fruit. F. Laubach, who wrote a great book on prayer a generation or so ago, F. Laubach has said that it is the preacher's business to look into the very face of God until he aches with bliss. Preaching that does not grow out of life of prayers like fruit from an artificial tree. Where there is no life, there is no real fruit. And that's not only true for preaching, it's true for every way that we serve God. One of the books that has greatly impacted my life and my ministry is E.M. Bounds' book, Power Through Prayer. He wrote that back in 1910. That's, that's been a while ago now, over 100 years ago. But I want you to listen how... This applies today when it comes to prayer in the real work of service. Now, the, the language is a little archaic because he wrote it in 1910. He uses the word men, but when it comes to service to the Lord, we know that it's men and women. And Bounds wrote, We are constantly on a stretch, if not a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations. That sounds like today, doesn't it? This was back in, in 1910. New organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency for the gospel. <coughs> Excuse me. The trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man or sink the man in the plan or organization. God's plan is to make much of a man, far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method, and we could also add there, women are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men with whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty of prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men 
men of prayer. And of course, that includes women of prayer as well. And we hear the same message from A.W. Tozier almost 60 years ago when he talked about the difference between what he called a scribe and a prophet. And this was in his landmark book, The Pursuit of God. How many of you read The Pursuit of God? We got people? Yeah, what a, what a great book. Tozier wrote, and he uses the word men again, but applies to women as well. Men of breaking hearts had a quality about them not known to or understood by common men. They habitually spoke with spiritual authority. They had been in the presence of God and they reported what they saw there. They were prophets, not scribes. For the scribe tells us what he has read and the prophet tells us what he has seen. The distinction is not an imaginary one. Between the scribe who has read and the prophet who has seen, there's this difference as wide as the sea. We are overrun today with orthodox scribes, but the prophets, where are they? The hard voice of the scribe sounds over evangelicalism, but the church waits for the tender voice of the saint who has penetrated the veil and has gazed with inward eye upon the wonder that is God. And yet thus to penetrate, to push insensitive living experience into the holy presence is a privilege open to every child of God. The real work of ministry is prayer. The real work of service and however God calls you to serve is penetrating the veil, coming into the presence of God, gazing upon him, beholding, as Paul said, Christ in a mirror and being transformed more and more into his image. The real work of serving God in whatever way he has called you to serve is to come into his presence, open God's word, seek his will and his heart in prayer. It's like my preaching professor told me one time in seminary. I took a class that's called homiletics. That's a fancy word for you're going to be a preacher someday, son. Homiletics. It's a, it's a preaching class. And we were weeks into the class, and Dr. Kutcher, who was one of the great preachers of the day, had been giving us these assignments where he would say, read Luke the parable of the sower in Luke, and, and just write down your thoughts, and put it down in a journal, and and, uh, and pray about that. And those were the assignments for the class, you know, just one after another. Every week it was one of those kinds of, uh, of assignments. And after class one day, I, I finally asked him, I said, Dr. Kutcher, when are we going to learn how to preach? When are we going to learn how to exegete the scripture? You know, you learn those big words, so you got to use them when you get a chance, you know. When are we going to lead, learn to expound God's word and, and learn how to outline and really give good application and, and all these things? And, and uh, Dr. Kutcher looked at me and said, Bill, if you don't take it in, you have nothing to give out. And then the real privilege was taking a night class on prayer from Dr. Kutcher where we learned how to get into God's presence and take it in and learn from him. Your effectiveness in serving Christ is a direct result of the intimate time you spend with God in prayer and in intimacy with him. Like Moses going into the tent of meeting where you speak with God face to face as one man speaks to another. And without that, your service, whatever you do, and even your life, without that, it's just mechanized religion. Sit up, stand around, turn around, look around, and Paul would say, it's rubbish, and it is. Now, one of the things that Paul specifically prayed about concerning the Romans was that he'd be able to visit them in Rome. Paul 
dearly wanted, longingly wanted to go to Rome. He said that by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. That I may succeed in coming to you. So that brings us to the third characteristic of what it means to be a serving saint. First of all, serving saints spread the gospel and rejoice to hear of it being spread. Serving saints serve God sincerely as they wait on him in prayer. And thirdly, serving saints long to be with other saints for the purpose of effective ministry. Look at verse 11 of Romans chapter 1. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now somebody has pointed out that's a good thing Paul was hindered from going to Rome sooner because now we have the letter that, that's part of, of that delay. Paul was in Corinth when he wrote the book of Romans. He wanted to go to Rome, but since he couldn't go, God prevented him. It wasn't God's will. He wrote this wonderful letter, which is called the greatest letter ever written. But these verses reveal Paul's heart for the believers and the aim of his intended visit there. So I want to briefly touch on five aspects of effective ministry that can be drawn out of these verses. And we're going to go through these very quickly because there'll be much more detail on each one of them as we study the book of Romans. So we're not going to give you the full load of hay right here. We're going to wait as we study the book of Romans so we can chew on it and learn from it and apply it to our lives. But if we are to be effective in ministry as Grace Baptist Church, this is what it looks like. This is what effective ministry looks like. And uh, these are not in the outline, so you might want to, to write them down. First of all, the atmosphere for effective ministry is warm personal relationships. The atmosphere for effective ministry is warm personal relationships. Paul longed to see these saints. He often expressed in all his writings the heartfelt desire to be with other believers. For example, he wrote to the believers in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, he said to them, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. While Paul couldn't begin to be close with every believer in Rome, his heart of love and concern for them all still comes through. The atmosphere for effective ministry is warm personal relationships. Secondly, the aim of effective ministry, the goal of effective ministry, is to see others established in their faith. The aim of effective ministry is to see others established in their faith. Paul wanted to minister to the saints in Rome so that they would be established, he said. It's the same thing that he'd written to the believers in Ephesus. He wanted them to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ. And he wrote likewise to the Thessalonians who were new in their faith, going through some intense trials. He said, for now we, we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. The aim of effective ministry is to see others established in their faith. And thirdly, the sphere of effective ministry is spiritual gifts. 
The sphere of effective ministry is a spiritual gifts. In other words, when we operate and function and serve God in the area of our giftedness, that's where we are effective. Paul wanted to go to Rome to impart some spiritual gift to them. Now, what does that mean that he would impart some spiritual gift to them? Now, there, there are several views. Somebody says that, well, Paul's going to lay hands on them and give them a particular spiritual gift. But that can't be because Paul wrote to the Corinthians that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts to each person just as he will. So it's the Holy Spirit and him alone that gives spiritual gifts. So it's not likely that Paul had the ability to impart spiritual gifts to them. Rather, it probably means that he wants to impart the gift of his own apostolic understanding of the gospel, his own spiritual gift. And in imparting that, we have the book of Romans. Paul exercised his gift of teaching, imparting especially his understanding of justification by faith alone. These believers would be more established in their faith. The sphere of effective ministry is spiritual gifts, or, or as we serve in the area of our spiritual gifts. Fourth, the spirit of effective ministry is mutual encouragement. The spirit of effective, I may have said the spear, this double, double vision. The spirit of effective ministry is mutual encouragement. Paul slightly corrects his comment about imparting some spiritual gift to them by adding in verse 12, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Even though Paul was such a gifted, knowledgeable man, maybe, you know, Lord Jesus Christ had all the spiritual gifts. I think number two would be the Apostle Paul. He was specially gifted by the Lord. And but the ministry would not be all one way. This man to the people at Rome, he quickly acknowledges that he looks forward to be encouraged by their faith as well. Many of you have had that happen. You've heard that somebody's in the hospital or they're bedridden or they're at home or, or going through a tough time and their, their circumstances. And so you go over to cheer them up. <laughs> you go over to minister to them however you can and serve them. And you come away much more ministered to by their faith than what you felt like you imparted to them. That, that happens all the time. The spirit of effective ministry is mutual encouragement. And lastly, the result of effective ministry is to bear fruit. The result of effective ministry is to bear fruit. According to verse 13, Paul wanted to obtain some fruit among them as he had among the rest of the Gentiles. The fruit among them as he had among the rest of the Gentiles, his job, his calling was to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles so that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so primarily the fruit here is new converts. Paul wanted to go to Rome, preach the gospel, and see the fruit of, of that ministry. But the fruit can refer to any blessing or benefit that comes through God's working through us, all kinds of fruit. Our aim should always be to glorify God by bearing much fruit. Now we come to the last lesson that God has for us in Romans chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15. It is this, serving saints are debtors to all people to proclaim the gospel to them. Verse 14, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. 
I am under obligation. Literally says, I am a, a debtor. We're going to come back to that idea. But he says to Greeks and barbarians, that means to, to everybody, all nations. Since the Greeks viewed everybody that wasn't a Greek as a barbarian, the word barbarian means everybody else. Where did they get the word barbarian? It's one of those words that sounds like what it, what it is. Uh, because the Greeks would hear these people from the north speaking their language, and to them it sounded like bar, 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 bar. That's literally where it comes from. So they're barbarians because all the time they go bar, 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 bar. Or if you're really, I'm like, bar, bar, bar. <laughs> yeah, and, so, and so that's what they thought. These, so it's, it's everybody, whether it's Greek or barbarians, was everybody else. Wise and foolish means every level of society, from the most educated to the uneducated. In, er, in other words, every human being, Greek or barbarian, wise or foolish, needs to hear the gospel because everybody has sin, is in need of the Savior. And everybody needs to repent and believe in him. But what does Paul mean when he says he's a debtor to these people? I want to give two illustrations to help us understand this. Being a debtor in this regard has been illustrated by being a person who has been cured of a deadly disease. You know what cured you. You know who cured you or who applied the, the medicine to you. And so you can tell others where they can find the cure. And in this case, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to pay any money. The cure is available and free for the taking right where a person is. When you meet a sinner, and that's everybody, you owe it to them to tell them about the cure. And telling them shouldn't be a difficult burden. At all. My, my wife does this all the time because of her many health problems, those kind of things. And, you know, when she finds something that works, she gets on the phone and she's telling people what it is. I know several of you in this congregation do the same thing when it comes to our health problems. We share and we, we learn in that. Paul was eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome because he knew that the gospel was God's remedy for sin for everybody who believes. Or another of the same idea. If you go by somebody's house at night and you see that it's on fire, you are obligated to tell the residents that their house is on fire and to call the fire department, right? You're an indebtor to them that they might be, be saved. Now, there's another way to look at it, and it's to understand that there's two ways to be in debt in the literal sense. The first way to be in debt is you borrow money, or you owe somebody for work or a service that they provided for you. We're all familiar with that. A lot of us have lots of that <laughs> going on. But the second way to be a debtor is that somebody gives you a sum of money to give to somebody else. Say they give you $10,000 and you're supposed to take that to, the, to somebody else. You are a debtor to that person who's going to receive the money until you give them the money. God has entrusted you, every one of you, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the gospel is not just for us, right? We are debtors to those who haven't heard it. We are called of God to pass it on to those who need to respond. We cannot hold it just unto ourselves. I mentioned in the Sunday school class days, we kind of hit on that. 
when I go into Albertsons and there's a checker behind that counter, if he or she doesn't know Jesus Christ, I am a debtor to that person to tell them about Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And Paul's sense of obligation to carry the message of Christ was not a burden, not a burden at all. You see, obligation, being a debtor in this regard, doesn't have to be a joy, joyless commitment to an unpleasant task. You know, we were doing a study one time in a Bible study where we are talking about Jesus says, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for my burden is, is how's that go? My, <laughs> never quote it after you've had surgery. My burden is light. What's the rest of it? Anyway, but somebody said, you know, if, if your burden is heavy, you're carrying the wrong burden. You ever think about that? You're not carrying the burden of Jesus Christ. Obligation doesn't need to be a joyless commitment to an unpleasant task, but, but an eagerness that grows out of our own transforming experience, the same way as it did at the Damascus Road where Paul met the risen Lord, coupled with the realization that he was privileged to share with the gospel with others. What did Paul immediately do after Ananias laid hands on him and his eyesight was restored? He went out and started preaching the gospel telling everybody, I've met the Lord, I know Jesus, he has come to me, and he can come to you as well. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we've really gone over a lot of things this morning, very quickly, and, uh, but knowing that uh, we're going to be going into wonderful depth into each one of these as we continue in the book of Romans, Father. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you would give us a heart like the heart of Paul, that you would give us that sense of, of eagerness to tell other people what we know and what Jesus has done for each one of us, Lord. And I do pray, too, that, uh, Father, we will undergird and go to you in all things in prayer that, Father, we will remember that first things first, and the first thing is prayer. Father, I thank you that we are privileged to be used of you in the plan of the ages to redeem men and women and boys and girls and save them and bring them to Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.